Hello and welcome to A New and Ancient Story. This is a podcast, a series of conversations, interviews, and occasionally speeches dedicated to the transformation of self and society. The basic idea is that we are moving from a story of separation to a new story, new for the dominant culture at least, of interbeing. What that means will become apparent as you listen to this series. We explore things like technology, spirituality, agriculture, healing, economics, politics, ecology, relationships, education. I mean, pretty much everything that is undergoing a transition today as our old story nears collapse. If you want to engage these ideas more deeply, you can come to our website, charleseisenstein.net. Hello, everybody. Charles Eisenstein here together with Alnor Lada, who I've known for many years, uh, a deep radical, one of the founders of therules.org, and then kind of on a sabbatical year this year, but kind of like me, called out of temporary retirement by current events. And right now we are planning to talk about the Amazon rainforest and to expand the normal conversation, which as we were talking about before we, we began, is so much, so often reduced to these uh, bare scientific terms of carbon dioxide and things like that. Actually, in my understanding of the world, the Amazon is a complete organism and, and an organ of a living planet. And it includes not just what scientists measure, but also the cultures and people that are part of the Amazon and maybe other things that are beyond the habits of the Western mind to recognize. So I'll just open with that, uh, Alnur, and um, just see where you want to take it. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that. And thanks for introducing me, Charles. Um, and, and in many ways, it's, it's interesting. I, I, it's almost like I'm interviewing you, right? Because I, I, I'm sort of asking your perspective in many ways on uh, what your sense is on what's happening in the Amazon and how we can actually uh, have a broader discourse about what's happening. And it's such an interesting moment in the media because from a media cycle perspective, because you have the, the two impending crises, quote unquote, of the COVID moment and uh, the struggle for racial justice. And um, to talk about anything else almost feels like uh, an inopportune moment or something like that, you know? And there's all these other things happening of serious import and consequence on the planet. And so I think part of the, my question to you is, uh, how do we bring this into mainstream discourse and how do we talk about uh, major issues like the Amazon and also just the, the recent findings uh, that have come out of the Amazon, which is there's these tipping points that are coming faster than everyone, anyone thought or knew they would come um, and the loss of indigenous life and culture and how it's all interconnected really with, with COVID. Yeah as minors encroaching in the territory, and also with the racial justice struggle as racism is sort of driving a lot of Bolsonaro's policies. Well, that's a large piece to chew on. Um, so yeah, this is the moment of COVID. It's the moment of the civil unrest around racial justice. 
And I think both of these issues, uh, they have something in common or, or they have an invitation in common that I would like to extend, which is what is left out of these discourses? To even participate in a certain debate affirms that that is the debate we should be having and that, that this is the most important thing to be talking about right now. Now, I'm not saying that racial justice or COVID-19 are not important, but what I'm saying is that we tend as a society to focus on very narrow aspects of those issues and leave an awful lot out. So, for example, racial justice, so much of it is about the police and uh, the racism within police forces, uh, police brutality, extrajudicial murders, and in general, the impoverished uh, state of African-Americans in this country, the legacy of racism and trauma. And I, I, I just keep marveling at how people can be so passionate about these issues and be willing to march in the streets and put their lives at risk and topple statues and not even bat an eyelash or have any awareness of the horrors unfolding in the DRC right now, for example, or the uh, tens of millions of people, most of them black and brown on this earth who are facing starvation because of lockdowns, like actual starvation. You can see the photos, you can see the videos. Or the indigenous people in the Amazon whose cultures and persons are being destroyed by economic development which in certain quarters is supposed to be what is supposed to uplift them from the zero dollars a day subsistence lifestyle that you have as a hunter-gatherer. That's maybe another topic, but it's actually not another topic. It's part of the same theme of what's getting totally. left out f from the way that we, the dominant culture of this earth, or the one that at least seems to be dominant to itself, um, the, the way that we see the world, what gets left out from our metrics, uh, what gets left out from our value system and our sense of what's important and what's not. So we could say that in the social justice conversation in America, one thing that gets left out is the effects of neoliberal economics and military imperialism around the world, which is doing way more harm to people with a lot of melanin in their skin than anything happening within this country. Like that's something that gets left out. And when we talk about the uh, global biosphere, the environment, today mostly anything that cannot be translated directly and easily into carbon dioxide metrics gets left out. So not a lot of conversation about mining, for example. And the Amazon, well, that's important to the extent that it uh, stores carbon and, and stores and sequesters carbon that's most of what you see. Now, there's now a little bit of understanding growing about the biotic pump and the role that the Amazon plays in anchoring global patterns of precipitation. Uh, so there's, there is a growing awareness that the Amazon is an organ of a living being and the Congo as well. I mean, whatever's happening in the Amazon, it's worse in the Congo. Uh, and I hope that anything we talk about here and any service we do for the Amazon, uh, it's my prayer that it will also help the Congo. So, yeah. Um, 
I'm not gonna go into COVID-19 and what's getting left out in that conversation. I would like to dedicate our conversation to bringing some of those beings, people, cultures, other than human beings, back in uh, to the conversation. Yeah, no, thank you for saying that. And I think it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful dedication. And, you know, one of the, the kind of, I guess, mantras of, of the rules was uh, all oppression is connected. There, there is no individual issue or problem area outside of anything else because they're so deeply interconnected. And I, I think one of the understandings in mainstream media is that everything has its time. So this is the time of COVID and this is the time of racial justice and we'll get to the Amazon and we'll get to the Congo uh, when it has its moment in the sun of the news media cycle. And so when we reach out to, to journalists or others who are doing work in this space, that's often the response we get um, as, as people who do media activism work and, and, and organizing work in that space. There, there is a, a, a sort of bigger argument and a bigger discussion to be had about the, the, the role of capitalism, for example, you know, as, as the oxygen, as the economic operating system and how all of these things are interconnected with the system where we now have one way to acquire goods and services, right? We had fishing and hunting and bartering and gifting and, and now it's fiat debt-based currency. And so whoever had the head start on that, i.e. Western Europeans, uh, had the head start on, on this accumulation through whatever, imperialism, slavery, genocide, et cetera. And so now you're in the position where we could look at this current moment uh, without a historical lens or without a structural lens, and you, have a, you, you get to a very different place of analysis than if you brought that in. But it's also something that almost can't be spoken about in any place where there's funders or advertisers or a sort of commercial element because it's seen as so taboo. Right. And so I'd, I'd love your take on that. Yeah. Um, there is truth in every issue has its time. Now is the time of COVID. Now is the time of racial justice and so forth. But then we, after a while, you start to think, okay, but how come we never get ever to some of these things that are always on the back burner? And you start to notice that the things that the, the mainstream media favors as the issue of the day are things that are not actually that disruptive to capitalism. Capitalism is not disturbed by COVID. Uh, in fact, a certain type of capitalism is thriving on COVID. Yeah, uh, the rich are getting rich. Yeah. The billionaires are doing just fine. Yeah. Um, small business is being decimated around the world. Capitalism is not actually that disturbed by racial justice either. Capitalism doesn't care the skin color of those who are administering the world-destroying machine. All it needs is an underclass and a broadly desperate working class to keep profits high and wages low. Uh, and, and okay, and I'm, I don't want to overstate that case because it's also true, as you were saying, that all oppression is the same, um, that each contains all the rest, you might say, and that deep healing of any form of oppression generates a field of healing that also leads us to look at other forms of oppression. So what I just said isn't the complete picture. Uh, nonetheless, generally speaking, the media tends to focus on the things that are not so deeply disturbing to the system. When you get into protecting the Amazon and all other ecosystems, then you really run into problems uh, with the nature of capitalism as we know it today. 
which depends on endless growth and the constant acquisition of new resources. I mean, even that word is part of the problem to see mm -hmm. nature as simply something for us. But let's just use that word for now. Uh, to, it has an endless appetite for more and more resources, which is because of what you just referred to, the uh, money system. The problem isn't so much that it's a fiat system, but it is that it is an interest-bearing debt-based system that compels growth. So we do have to look at capitalism. And I know exactly what you're talking about as far as the sensitivity of that word. That's a, a taboo thing to talk about because all of a sudden you're a Marxist and you know that was discredited with the Soviet Union and so on and so forth. So I, I, I tend to be careful. Um, one, one of the points I make is what capitalism is depends on what capital is. And what is capital? It's money and property. Well, what is money and property? It is, what is money and property? <laughs> it's, it's a story, you know, it's an agreement. Uh, money is an agreement that human beings make about symbols. Property is an agreement that human beings make about who has what kind of right to do what with various pieces of the physical world. Agreements can be changed. Agreements are not absolute. So when I'm speaking to people who would be triggered by any mention of capitalism in the context of Marxism or socialism or something like that, I really talk about, let's change the nature of capitalism. Let's change the nature of capital so that it conforms to our expanding consciousness expanding beyond the separate self, be expanding beyond the war on nature that understands that we are here in a co-creative partnership with nature. What would capitalism look like then? How would we conceive property when it's not this object anymore? When we understand that the world has beingness and sacredness. I mean, okay, I did write a book about this, but, but basically that's not necessarily an answer that we can produce right now, but it is a, a beautiful and generative question to ask. And that can, can actually get people to entertain deeply anti-capitalist ideas without labeling them as anti-capitalist. And, and, it, and it speaks to the part of people that actually do want to do that, that mm -hmm. are, mm -hmm. I mean, this system isn't working for anybody, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, so, you know, sometimes and often we, we talk about post-capitalism, you know, it's like, I, I'm not anti anything. It's just this current cycle has run its course and clearly has reached its, its limits and whatever uh, assessment you want to make of that, whether that's planetary bounds or levels of happiness or, you know, and the, as soon as you bring up the frame of post-capitalism, it, it, it does open up a very generative space. But what's also interesting is, people want to, you want you to have the alternative, you know, okay, well, if this system isn't working, you must be a socialist, as you said. And when you say, no, I'm, I'm, it's not binary. And I don't believe that uh, it could be something else. And, and as soon as you get into the realm of post-capitalism, they want to know the definition of that ism. And uh, I think it was um, David Graeber who said, you know, the new system is not going to be created by Marx and Engels or a couple smart 
white Europeans in a room. And it's not our obligation to actually explain what the new system is going to be. You know, it's not on the, the, the job of the vanguard, let's say, to, to explain and create a new system. Because as soon as you do that, you're getting into the same cycle of mm-hmm. creating a new institution that's going to fail anyways. So. Right. And that whole template for changing the world, which starts with a bunch of people, usually guys in a room, debating mm-hmm. about what's the best plan. And then the, then the next step is once you all agree and the, in this marketplace of ideas and the smartest person has prevailed and, and mesmerized the others with his intellect and the power of his idea, and everyone's like, yes, you're right. And they all agree on it. Then you unveil it to the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and everybody is like, yes, that, that is so, so logical uh, and, and so smart. And, and besides, we know you're the smartest people, so we trust you. And we'll go along with that. Like, we never even get to that step. You know, usually the guys in the room end up fighting for how many thousands of years now has this been going on? So like that way of to, mm-hmm. to like have a design, to have something that you impose onto the future is only necessary when you don't think that there is a, a design, a, a um, a future already existing beyond us that we can participate in. Like we don't have to actually create it. We could be guided toward it and listen for each appropriate next step. Uh, and, and that gets a little bit closer to an indigenous mindset mm-hmm. where yeah. you understand that there's, you are part of an immensely complex, mysterious being that is mm-hmm. unfolding over time and you ask what is my role what is my contribution what is my gift that that i offer and that we as a people offer to this evolution of life how do we participate in the beauty and the evolution of life and and yeah and and what you're saying so so Part of the, what, what I love about the notion of post-capitalism is that it's not, it's not an ism in the sense that um, there's, a, there's an ideology determining it, but it is informed by values. And those values are <clears throat> interdependence with life and nonviolence and uh, distributed forms of power and uh, distributed uh, wealth and access and you know, all of those things. But, but there's also a deep ideology rooted that I'm hearing you say, which is actually moving from a, a kind of model of domination to a model of dialogue with, with right. the living planet. And so you're also moving from a sort of uh, a mechanistic rationalism to a more animistic worldview, because that participation requires you seeing the world as something else than dead matter. Right. And, so, and, yeah, that, and I, I think we have to go to that level. If we don't go to that level, it's just about more cleverly deploying the resources out there to maximize some number. Like we're really good at maximizing a number. That's what financial logic does. And then the idea is, well, let's just translate that way of doing things onto greenhouse gases or onto some other metric. That is not a deep enough revolution. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not something that, that this culture 
that I find myself immersed in really knows how to do. It's not totally absent from this culture, but it's marginalized. The people who know how to do it are not in the halls of power. And if they are in the halls of power, they don't do that in the halls of power. So it's this way of being human, which is in dialogue with the other than human, in participation in something much greater than ourselves. That's something that other cultures have held and preserved and that we can learn from. So we have to see that as, see, see those cultures as precious treasures. And these cultures, you know, you can't preserve a culture without preserving the place where that culture is. Human and land or sea or water or soil or ecology, these are not, these are not separate. Culture is not separate from these things. It's not like something that exists just in the mind, but it exists in reference to land and even as an expression of the land. In fact, that's kind of what it means to be indigenous. It means to be of a place, mm-hmm. part of a place, the flesh you, of a place. Do you, so do you think that part of the desire to uh, colonize, to dominate, to extract quote unquote resources also comes from uh, not just a lack of humility, but actually or even a desire for those resources, but actually an active hate of these cultures. Is there a deep-seated racism in it? Um, I think it comes from a loss. It comes from a hunger. It's, a, it's the hunger for, for those connections uh, and that embeddedness and that feeling of being at home in the world that we Europeans, we, we white people had as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And some white people still have them, the Sami, for example, or some of the people in Siberia, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, But generally speaking, most white people, and and whatever your skin color, the the more that you're immersed in a market economy and in a conventional school system and in the worldview of science, the, the more disconnected you will become from place. And that disconnection that experience of life where you no longer are surrounded by intimate companions whose stories and relationships you know, that experience of life is is profoundly insecure. Because we are relational beings. We are not separate units of consciousness as conventional economics or biology or psychology recognizes. We are relational beings. So when our relationships are cut off, we become less and we hunger for the lost beingness. That hunger takes the form of greed, takes the form of addiction, takes the form of conquest. And then we turn around and blame greed and hate for the problems that it's causing. But actually greed is a symptom. Uh, Addiction is a symptom. It's a symptom of a, of a loss, of a cutoff. Hate is a symptom too, because when we run into people who remind us of what is lost, mm-hmm. that's really painful. Mm-hmm. And so we can channel that pain onto hating mm-hmm. them. Any hate relationship, there's love too. Mm-hmm. Like there's, there's longing. There's longing underneath hatred. Mm-hmm. So if we can access the longing and, and recognize it, and that requires some humility. It is about humility to, mm-hmm. to say, wow, 
I wasn't right. We didn't have it all figured out. We weren't marching to paradise. Uh, there's a letting go there. There's a, it's just like an addict, you know, in the mm -hmm. 12 steps, like, like this isn't working. I'm powerless. Mm -hmm. I can't control this help. And there does feel like a moment of, of like a, a cultural shift. Like we are moving from one step to another. I don't know the 12 steps enough to say which step that is, but there is this recognition that the, the orgy of hubris is losing its aura. Right. And that there's a, Oh, we thought progress was an arrow pointing upwards. And I still think there's a lot of denialism and there's lots of ways for, for that to be aided and abetted. You know, the Stephen Pinker, Bill Gates worldview, right? You just measure some made up measure like $1.25 a day in poverty or, or whatever and, 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 and off they go. But um, there does feel like a step change moment where, uh, I don't know if I would say the majority of consensus culture, but, but a stronghold in consensus culture is realizing whatever we were doing is not working anymore. Mm -hmm. but, but there's also a numbness that I, I feel like in some ways maybe doesn't recognize the loss you know, it, 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 right. it hasn't got to the place where it's assessing, oh, this desire for consumption uh, and, and moreness is, is coming from a place of loss. So what's the mirror to activate that? Yeah, it's just like in an addiction where, you know, for, so there's, there's a loss, there's um, a wound, and, you know, someone is cut off from intimacy or cut off from purpose in life. Uh, or just in pain. And for a while, the drug does assuage the pain more than it causes more pain. For a while, the gambling addiction brings that sense of excitement and fulfills that need. But increasing doses are required and it becomes less and less effective. And eventually the numbing effect stops working. Uh, and then, you know, that, and that happens peri periodically. And then you can try to up the dose or you can let it go. So as you're saying, I think that our palliative compensatory uh, addictions as a culture are still kind of working. You know, you can still uh, numb the longing by the next great show on Netflix or something like that. And to answer the question, I'm just like really like super aware of anything that lends itself to a narrative of self-conquest, of self-criticism, of self-hatred. Like we're just uh, hubristic, you know, we're arrogant, we're greedy, we're hate-filled, we are racist, we are uh, not humble, uh, we are numb. Like anything that lends itself to a solution that requires self-conquest is going to be part of the matrix. It's part of the mentality of conquest, of extirpating the bad thing and saving the world. And people resist it. People feel attacked when you come at them with that energy. And even if they don't resist it, typically, and we see this a lot happening in race discourse today, they will go through these uh, dramatic apologetics in order to get off the hook, in order to look good, in order to give the appearance, to signal their virtue, to give the appearance that they are not blameworthy anymore. But the things that we have to do, the changes we have to make are much bigger 
than merely what we have to do to appear blameless or to get off the hook or to get down on our knees and polish someone's boot or to tear down a statue and look what I did. Like what we have to do is so much deeper and more thorough than that. It's not going to come from trying to look good. It's not going to come from vanity. It's not going to come from the desire to be accepted by certain people that we've elevated to high status. All of these dynamics are part of the old story. And, and it's a good question to ask, okay, like, honestly, what does it take for somebody to let go of arrogance? And we can look inward maybe for answers to that. What does it take for someone to let go of a hate-filled ideology and to realize what does it take to say, wow, I was wrong. If our formula for success is that the other team finally admits that they were wrong all the time and that, yeah, Al Noor, you were right all, all, all along. <laughs> Guess what? They want that too. And I, here's one thing I know for sure. Everybody on all sides is, has something that they're wrong about that is dearly held and part of their identity, including the left, including the radicals, you know, including you and me. Of course, yeah. And what's it going to take? You know, like this political identity and this attachment to a certain ideology or a certain set of beliefs, to, to get our identity from that, that's a symptom too. Mm -hmm. That comes from the loss of connection and of being known and being accepted by a tribe, by a village, by a community where we really feel at home here in the world. To, and, and where we have the identity that comes from complete relationships, rich relationships to human and non-human beings. We don't have that, then we are insecure, psychologically insecure. And so we, we obtain that identity through tribalism, as it's called, you know, through political identification, through virtue signaling, through Status. displaying certain beliefs. Yeah. 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 And I, and I agree with you that, that, that the sort of pointing out of wrongness is not a strategy for uh, some kind of dialectical harmony that, that will come from that. And, and yet there does seem to be responsibility and agency more than others. And, and all cultures, just like all identities, have their shadow. And, and yet some cultures have more negative impact on, let's say, uh, the flourishing of life. You know, like, does Western culture take more responsibility than an Amazonian indigenous culture for the destruction of life on the planet? You know, like, I, I do feel there's a non-dualistic area where it's like both are simultaneously true. And, you know, in, in terms of there's a disproportionate destruction of the planet that has come from uh, Western culture. Does that mean everyone who holds Western culture is a destroyer? Of course not. <laughs> you know, and we've all internalized that culture. So that culture is not outside of us simultaneously. Right. And so actually for, for me, I do find it helpful when uh, there's these moments where I realize that my hubris or my stubbornness or my domination or my desire to know or to will my power over something is uh, the problem. <laughs> and as soon as I acknowledge it, there's a softening. Mm -hmm. But I, 
I don't know if that's true, let's say, with Bolsonaro in, in the Amazon. You know, my, my higher self wants to believe that's true, that, that actually where the behavior is coming from is this deep longing for, uh, for village ways and for circle ways. Uh, but there's another part of me, I don't know, maybe we, I don't even know if that's the more cynical part or whatever, the real politic part or whatever, uh, believes that he, he's um, so deeply enjoys the role he plays as, you know, as does Donald Trump in some ways as, as yes. the, the Wetico in chief. Yes. Given the alternative, um, Bolsonaro and Trump do enjoy their position, I think. They would rather be head honcho than be, you know, the defeated candidate or the loser. But look at either of those men. How much joy do you see radiating from their soul compared to maybe some of the indigenous people you know? Like, are they, you know, radiating joy? <laughs> no. Okay, so yeah, um, to go back to a little earlier in your, in your comment there, um, it's obvious that Western modern culture has wreaked way more destruction on this planet than any other culture. Like that is a obvious fact that we have to take in. Like we have to take in the reality of what's happening on this planet. What is damaging, what I was, the point I was trying to make, what is damaging is to ascribe that to our moral soul level inferiority. Because when you make that description, then you get to ignore the circumstances that generate the behavior. It's actually, in a subtle way, it's actually maybe the best way to preserve the status quo is to blame bad things on bad people. Now, there could, okay, so I'll get to Trump and Bolsonaro in a minute, but, but if, in fact, the problem with the world were bad people, then we know what to do. We tear them down, we conquer them, we dominate them, we destroy them, we kill them, we imprison them. Boy, that sounds familiar already, doesn't it? This is kind of the way that society is running right now. Uh, if we understand that, um, and this is the basic tenet of compassion, if we understand that, gosh, if I were in the totality of that person's circumstances, I would probably do the same thing. If I were... Born, if I were born into the generational trauma that may have been present in the Trump family, if I had had the father and the mother and the environment that he had, if I had grown up in the way he did, do I really know that I wouldn't do the same things that he's doing? Do I know that for sure? And if I believe that I would, what am I actually saying here? I'm saying I'm just made of better stuff than he is. That is a kind of elitism that mirrors more traditional forms of elitism, social elitism, and that makes a lot of activists, attracts a lot of opposition um, to activists. Like people can sniff it out, that kind of superiority. So if that diagnosis is wrong, but we hold to that diagnosis, bad people, problems, bad people, then we never look for the real causes. We never look for the totality of the situation that generates the behavior. So in fact, it, it's not from a, from a place of, oh, let's go easy on people. Let's let people off the hook, you know, that I 
call to look at the conditions. It's because that's actually what's necessary to change things. And you may never have the satisfaction of dancing over the grave of your fallen enemy or, you know, standing there with your arms outstretched and your foot on his chest. We won. Uh, but what's more important to you? Winning or that the problem is healed? So, uh, I, yeah, I hear you totally. And what, another way to look at this. So what, what if to say that um, actually the, the culture itself rewards a certain type of psychosis, short-termism, yes. greed, et cetera, right? So you, you, you understand that you're getting to that root and, and in the analysis. But within that culture, uh, even if there's empathy with the, the, the plight of whoever, name your, your, your character, because uh, you know, it's not about a person, because it's the culture itself that has to change. But within a culture that rewards psychosis, certain types of people do well in that system. Right. And if you see it that way, so you have, you know, it's a complex adaptive system and it has these rules. It's got these values and people who yeah. sort of perform those roles well get pulled to the top. You know, it's the opposite of a merit system. Right. The, the, the sort of the ruthless uh, get pulled to the top. Right. And then yeah. your, your worldview is slightly different now. Right. It's like I look at Fortune magazine or or, uh, you know, whatever uh, Wall Street Journal, and New York Times and. Whoever does well in that culture, whose faces are on the cover of those magazines and those newspapers are, are simply to me the people who serve that logic the best. And so if I was in Trump's position, even though I have deep empathy for his particular line of trouble and the fact that he's born into a culture that's rewarding that, he still has agency on some level, right? And, and so how do we also account for that in our moral calculus mm -hmm. of what's yes. happening? Right. So, yeah, we get to the point of, of choice. Our choices are conditioned but not determined by our circumstances. Or another way to look at it is that there are deeper circumstances that can be invoked and catalyzed. The deeper circumstances being just our basic divinity um, and the will to evolve. So some people are very skilled and powerful at activating buried, marginalized parts of others uh, for good or for bad. Um, you know, I'm thinking about our friend Pancho, uh, for example. You, have you met Pancho? Pancho Ramos Stierl? He's an activist in Oakland. Uh, no, I don't. A lot of, uh, yeah, a lot of social justice stuff. I mean, he's like, you know, goes to jail all the time, you know, and, and he'll be in jail and he'll say to one of the guards at some point, oh, for one thing, he'll keep his cell really, really clean, you know, and like clean it out for the next person. And like, and then he'll say at some point to a guard, uh, brother, your soul is too beautiful to be doing this work. And he'll actually mean it. And it'll become because he actually is seeing into the beauty of that human being. And, you know, when, when he, when, when he approaches people that way and speaks to that part of them, something awakens. And, and there's all kinds of stories about, about the uh, responses that he's gotten uh, and, and uh, the friendships that he's formed with people who you would think are just like a totally uh, despicable racist cop, for example. Uh, 
that's the kind of power we need to be able to access that doesn't require that we somehow overcome the Trumps and the Bolsonaros at their own game. Because if, if, if we don't have the allyship of some part of themselves that actually wants what we want, then the only option is to overcome them by force. And you might be able to overcome a Trump or a Bolsonaro by force. Mm. But can you overcome the entire military, industrial, pharmaceutical, educational, NGO, financial, agricultural, industrial complex by force? They have the force, not us. So just as a matter of pure practicality, uh, we have to adopt a different way mm-hmm. than to become better than the oppressor, oppressors at the techno- technologies of oppression. Paulo Freire said it quite clearly, you know, that in warning about sub-oppression and the tendency to adopt the methods of the oppressors. Uh, and then you, at best, you become the new oppressor. Probably you're not going to be as good at it as they are, and you're going to lose. But even if you win, you lose. So, boy, this yeah. is getting, this conversation is really like, it really feels like it has a life of its own. Yeah. And we're helpless to talk about anything about what we're talking about. Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. And, and that is the tendency of the left. You know, that, that's what we've seen. Every counter-revolution becomes the new oppressor, you know, and yeah. because there isn't a spiritual moral compass in it. But it, it's interesting. Yet, I, I, I think that the, the sort of compassion and the structural understanding of the context that created people, you can still have a, a discernment and a judgment a divine judgment, let's say, that, that uh, does not come from a place of moral superiority, but it comes from a place of, uh, I know your soul deserves more than this. Yes. Y- you know. And, and, and so, I also think that, so like what, I'm, what I was saying can be misinterpreted to say, well, okay, so let's not talk about the bad things that people right. are doing. It's quite the opposite. Yeah. Actually, the truth has to come out. The stories that have been suppressed have to come, come in to the um, central consciousness of society. And what makes that able to happen? If you're, if you're carrying those stories and wielding them as weapons to make someone feel bad, they're gonna be resistant to them. But if you can bring them forth with, I know you as a caring person will be troubled by this, but I know that you actually want to live in a way that takes into account the full truth of what's happening on this planet. So let, let us be together in the pain of this story um, and, and, and expand our consciousness to include data points that were outside our consciousness before. But, but to avoid translating that into you're bad, you're guilty, you're, you're, you should be ashamed of yourself. It doesn't work. No, no. No. And this is the moment we're in culturally right now. It's why the bifurcation is, is happening in such a deep and intense way. Um, yeah. And, and maybe we go full circle back to the Amazon and, mm. and uh, with, with this lens of whatever we want to call this, you know, post-activism or, or political work that's informed by a deeper spiritual impulse of, of shared healing. Uh, how do we approach a situation uh, where the structure and the culture itself requires perpetual growth? So it requires the raising of the Amazon, 
for soy and minerals and timber and you know, uh, etc. And so, in in some ways, it doesn't matter if you replace Bolsonaro with somebody else because the the global machinations in place are going to require the next person to do exactly the same thing. Maybe not with so much pleasure and fervor, but it's going to happen. Right. It's hard to resist. Um, this happened to uh, Ecuador, the former president mm -hmm. of Ecuador. Ivo Morales? Oh, no. Morales. Uh, I think Carrera, it was Morales, Carrera. actually. Carrera in, in Ecuador and Morales in Bolivia. I think right. this was in, I don't remember if it was in Ecuador or Bolivia, but I think it was Ecuador, so it would be Carrera. Carrera. But it was mm -hmm. like, they, were, they said, okay, we have all this oil and we'd like to leave it in the ground. So global community, just pay us half of what we would make from this oil and we'll leave it in the ground. And no one took them up on it. So they're like, okay, we have to drill the oil. We, we can't say, okay, Ecuador, leave your oil in the ground, but please keep making your international debt payments, <clears throat> which you can only make with hard currency that you can only get by exporting your natural resources. So, so keep paying, mm -hmm. but don't, 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 don't drill your oil. Like that is right. hypocrisy. And that hypocrisy is possible doesn't mean like that you're a hypocrite, really. What it means, like fundamentally, it means that you don't, you're not, actually hypocrisy is either a symptom of ignorance, in which case it's really ignorance, not hypocrisy, or it's a symptom of being in a double bind, subject to conflicting imperatives. And we are all subject in a market economy anyway to conflicting imperatives. Like on the one hand, we have to do certain things in order even to survive or to be comfortable or to meet our basic needs. And another imperative, the imperative of the heart, wants to do other things. So this, this um, notion of co conflicting imperatives is important because there are many situations where as individuals and even as nations, we do take actions and make choices that are for the benefit of life, that are for the benefit of the people of the earth, despite the economic pressure to do otherwise. So in the current situation where we do face an opposition between heart and self-interest, we can ally ourselves with the part of a, a political leader or a corporate leader or anybody who is ready to be brave. Courage is a community function. We can awaken and sustain the courage of each other. And, and, and witness, the, witness that courage and celebrate that courage and hold for a leader that, yeah, I know there's a lot of pressure. You're getting pressure from the, from, you know, the opposition. You're getting pressure from the CIA-funded you know, media. You're getting pressure from the international bond markets. And, and there is an audacious next step that you can take that you know is right. And we're here to celebrate that. We're here to see that. So it's not hopeless. Like it's not that we can't do anything to save Amazon until the global financial system changes. And at the same time, boy, it would sure be nice if the global financial system weren't the enemy of everything good. So I think that, that you know, we can work on that level too. And, and different people are cut out for different kinds of work. Uh, and, and are called to different arenas of action. I mean, in a way, 
and I don't want to dilute the call to do something directly to help the Amazon, but in a way, anybody who's working for any kind of healing or any kind of justice is helping the Amazon also. It's the same as you were saying about all oppression is related and really the same. It's true also of healing. All healing is part of the same healing. And I, and I don't want it to, anyone to construe that as, okay, so fine, the Amazon will be taken care of by the people who are devoted to the Amazon and I'm just going to work on my, um, yeah, theoretically that's true. Like if you're solely devoted to your own little community, that will help the Amazon. However, it may also be true right in this moment that you feel a calling stirring in you to do something about the Amazon. And, and Alnur, because like a little bit of what this conversation is, is almost like a strategy session. Um, <laughs> we could talk about what uh, generates that stirring. What does stir someone's care for the Amazon? And I think that a lot of it is to be connected to its beauty, to its magnificence. Um, to have, yeah, it, it comes through a, a connection. People will never be stirred to help the Amazon merely by being frightened by the scary and very, very much valid, I mean, um, projections about what's going to happen if we destroy the Amazon. At the beginning, you talked about these tipping points, you know, like somehow I feel called to mention one of them. I'm sure you understand it better than I do, but the, the way that forests create rain through like incredible levels of evaporation, through multiple, multiple layers of leaves, all of them transpiring moisture that then rises as water vapor, condenses, generating a low pressure zone that pulls, ultimately pulls air in from the oceans. In Brazil, they call it the flying river. You can see it. It's just like this exactly. massive amount of clouds getting sucked into the Amazon. So it's not just like, oh, the Amazon grows there because there's lots of rain. That's why it's called a rainforest. Uh-uh. The Amazon is creating the rain. It's a pump. It's like, well, actually the heart isn't a pump, but it is a lot more like the heart of the world than the lungs of the world, as it is often called. That pull of moisture that, I mean, that's like a major part of global winds and currents and rainfall. And you like stop 20%. doing that. Yeah. You have drought in Rhode Island, you know, when, not to mention that then the forest, when it gets shrunken enough, then it can't pull as much moisture in. Then you have fires and droughts and it shrinks even more. And there's your tipping point. And, and I think that we are very close to that. And there's another level too, uh, a more, I mean, I was going to say esoteric level, but it's not actually esoteric. Um, but that, that, the Amazon is, is, is on earth where, there, where the ecosystem is, is intact, at least for a vast area, and where Gaia's memory of health still exists. And if that can be preserved, there will always be hope. If there is like one healthy region that still has integrity, then it can teach the rest of the world to be healthy again. The, Ko the Kogi say a similar thing the imprint of that matrix of possibility always exists if it exists here, right. you know, and what's so unique is also the symbiosis with indigenous peoples and in the manner by which they live is unique to, to really any biome. 
And uh, we, we were talking about this uh, before we started, the pride by which indigenous people of the Amazon say, Cura de Terra, you know, we are the cure of the earth, because they understand that the sort of misanthropic lefty sentiment that, you know, human beings are cancer. It's like, well, in what, you know, whatever you want to call it, ecofascism. It's like, in what context is that true? Because in, in the Amazon, humans in the form of indigenous peoples are a companion species that are, are actively contributing to that ecosystem and that biome. And yes. that's really the possibility for all of us. It's also not just a, a, a sort of biological possibility as in that place, but it's also a, a possibility of human and more than human symbiosis. That's in fact, I would even go farther and say that's actually why we're here. Mm -hmm. We were created by Gaia. Like, why did the species come into existence now? Gaia did not make us by accident. Uh, species evolve to fill a need for the maintenance and the evolution of the whole. In other words, we have a gift to give to life. What is that gift? In the context of the Amazon, in the context of an indigenous culture, that gift is clear, you know, to enhance the life of that place through the practices and the ceremonies. Um, there's actually a lot of evidence, direct evidence for this. Alan Savory talks about this a bit, that national parks, uh, he's most familiar with, with Africa, but other places too, where humans are just kept out, the ecosystem tends to degrade sometimes or not recover as quickly as if people are doing regenerative practices in those places. Like land doesn't recover. Humans are essential parts of the ecosystem. Maybe, you know, 10,000, 50,000, a million years ago, depending on what continent we're talking about here, maybe the ecosystem was without human beings. But once they are introduced, there's an evolutionary possibility that can end up with the ecosystem being even more alive than it was before. That's why we're here. And on an individual level, I mean, don't you know, and I'm talking to anyone listening to this, don't you know that you are here to serve life? That is why you're here. And if you're not doing something that serves life in some way, probably you're going to feel, you know, there's something I'm supposed to be doing and I'm not doing. So the question, the, un, the open question is, okay, I mean, it's for an individual, for an indigenous culture, we can see what service to life might mean, but what does it mean for civilization? And, and the gifts that humans have that have enabled us to create a technological civilization and to wreak such destruction on earth, what are those gifts actually for? Why are we here? Why did Gaia produce us with the capabilities that we have? And why did Gaia even, if you really want to look at it in a bigger picture, why did Gaia offer us so much oil and minerals and everything we needed to build civilization? Gaia was bursting to give it. In the early days, all you had to do was like plunk a pipe into the earth and you'd have a gusher of oil. It was like this, here, take it. You know, now it's not quite like that. Now we have to pump water down uh, and frack, frack it to, get, to bring it out. You know, it's no longer a willing gift. And that's a sign that we are in a, in a moment of transition as a civilization. Um, but, but really, like, why? Why are we here? 
I'm not going to offer an answer to that, but I just want to affirm that that's mm-hmm. even the question, even to ask that question, what is our purpose and service to life? That already signals a shift in consciousness. Mm-hmm. And if we hold that question and are not satisfied with any false answer, that will be transformative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And, and you know, the, the humans that exist 10 million years from now will be potentially as different from us to, as we are to single cell amoebas. You know, it's like mm-hmm. we have no idea what is to come. And so the sort of continuity of that has always been to be culturally embedded with the impulse to be in service to life because there is some other thing happening that is beyond our understanding. This is the limitation of, of the scientific worldview as well. You know, science is a floor of understanding, not the ceiling. But as soon as we sort of elevate it to the ceiling of this is everything we know, or even the fetishization of the scientific method, you know, which is a method just that's embedded in five senses, you know, and, and not to say it's not useful, it plays an important role, but you, you, we're actually disconnecting from ourselves from this longer project of continuity to a life yet born. Yeah. 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 Thank you for that. Uh, yeah. You want to do a closing comment? You were going to say something? Yeah. Um, I don't know. Like we, we uh, got into this conversation. Um, we weren't quite sure how it was going to serve. I still am not quite sure. Yeah. Um, you know, what I really want to know and share um, What's the real reason, Alnor, that you are so passionate about protecting the Amazon? It's not because you're afraid of global warming. If global warming weren't happening, you would still be equally passionate in protecting the Amazon. What, 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 what is it? Like, what, what happened? Mm-hmm. Being born into a context in which you know this is not the way it should be, which I think all of us feel on some level, that, you know, there's that, there's multiple levels of grief, right? But there's one archetypal grief, which is being born into a culture that you don't identify with and you don't respect and you don't honor. And I I had a realization of that uh, very early on, you know, and... I think being born of uh, immigrant parents in, in a Northern context, you know, my parents are from East Africa uh, and they met in Vancouver in the seventies. And um, there was this pressure on me to uh, be more Canadian. And I, I would say all the immigrant kids wanted that, but, but nothing in me really wanted that. And uh, I, I think that disidentification with the dominant system made me ask like, well, where are the cultures where people are still of place that are Mm. still embedded, that are still, because whatever this is, is like not it. I just know that. And, uh, and so I think that that's for me, a, a part of the quest is like also coming from anarchist political circles where, where there's, there is a deep misanthropy. There's like a deep hate of humanity. And it's like, well, it, it depends on the context and the human and the culture. And when I look at indigenous cultures and I look at intact cultures, because they're not, it's not all indigenous. You know, I come from a Sufi right. lineage and I look at 
certain Sufi communities and their intact embedded communities in an oral history, in a tradition, in a culture of radical hospitality, of uh, belonging, of interdependence, of a humility, which is like, yeah, my primary identity is the universal identity. And when you're in a space like that, there, there is a redemption of the human project that exists. Mm-hmm. And, and the idea that we would be, we even have the power and ability to destroy other people's livelihood for the sake of consumption and growth of the, the economic system, which is just based on a bunch of preferences that are made up and socialized. And, right. uh, you know, it, it's so insane to me that to do anything else would be as insane, you know, if, right. if that makes any sense. Yeah, if it were making us happy, maybe we would, you know, justify it. But it's not even making us happy. Like, that's the ultimate irony. And and the sheer amount of work. Like, I I know, you know, we, we, through the rules, we ran a a campaign around World Bank land rights for four Mm -hmm. years. I was interfacing with these World Bank people all the time. And it was a deep spiritual teaching for me because I I wanted to, to other them in some way. And then you interact with them and you realize that, you know, they, they think they're doing a service to the world, you know, yep. and, and as do people who work in ad agencies think they're being creative and people who work yep. at the Gates Foundation think they're ending poverty. And, and so like having that interface with the, the folks at, at the World Bank just made me really shift my perspective on the, the sort of general motivation of why we're doing what we're doing. And, mm-hmm. and also, the, through that dialogue, I realized their resistance to a possibility of doing a new way was how difficult it would be. Oh, I, I hear mm-hmm. what you're saying about this post-capitalism stuff, Ulner, and the transition, and it, it just all feels very difficult. <laughs> and, and, and I was like, the, the sheer amount of difficulty to keep this thing in place is it's astronomical. Right. Like, the mining, the digging, the fracking, the extraction, the depression, the mental health issues that like... The wars that are necessary to keep it going, you know, to... Perpetual to, war, perpetual yeah. enslavement. Like, don't you think that's more difficult? But, but it's also that, and this is the, the really the, the interesting thing of the non-dual thing that I think you and I were, were getting to in the conversation on Sunday with Helena and Zach and, and also now is like, on some level... The higher self knows this is of no use to any of us. And on another level, I, I'm, the, I'm on a higher strata of a dying system. And the, the, it's okay to the lower self, you know, on some level. It's a, it's, this is the better position to be in if the, the whole ship is going down. And, and, and I, I do think there's a way that we, through discourse and what have you, uh, compassion and probably relationship also, you know, with the, the world banksters and the, the Gates workers and all of it is, is to, to shift out of that mindset. Um, mm-hmm. And, I, you know, I, I always think of the, the W.H. Auden quote from The Age of Anxiety where he says, uh, we would rather be ruined than changed. We would rather die in our dread than climb the cross of the moment and let our illusions die. Mm-hmm. And I remember reading that and, and realizing, oh, I see. I don't actually have to persuade them. I, I, I have to wait for, to let their illusions die. Mm. And, and in some ways, COVID is doing that for us. 
And the ecological destruction is doing that for us. And I agree with you. I don't think those external things are going to save us. There still has to be agency and choice to -hmm. pick another way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What you were saying about the World Bank people, like, wow, these are like, we're all set, you know, if we're leftists who have who understand the workings of the world, we're all set to, to encounter some horrible people when we go to the World Bank. I was talking to some woman who was like moved to the town in California where, where the only employers are basically Monsanto and a military base. And she was expecting to find lots of horrible people there. But she was like, wow, these are the nicest people. And it makes it so much more bewildering. I mean, if there were just evil people that we could destroy and solve the problem, that would be, and that's why they're doing those things at Monsanto and the World Bank and, and the Gates Foundation. But no, but this also, I think, underscores the point I was making before. It's hard enough for them to take in the truth that, wow, like at the World Bank, wow, we have been funding the destruction of cultures and ecosystems for 50 years. That's already a bitter pill to swallow without adding onto it. And it's because you're such an asshole. You know, it's because you're so greedy because you're this, you're that. The first one is true. The World Bank has been doing that. The second one is not true. So if you're trying to combine a truth and a falsehood and ask somebody to accept the truth, that's not a very effective strategy, is it? And instead to be like, wow, this is going to be a bitter pill to swallow. Um, and I know you're a caring person. And, and how easy is it for me to acknowledge and admit that something I've been doing for half my life has caused harm. Like what lengths will I go to, to deny that, to rationalize it? Mm. Pretty big lengths. And, and when I do admit it and, and face that, what's the context for that? What helps me to do that? What gives me the safety to do that? Um, so yeah, you know, on a personal level, we might have answers to that. Mm-hmm. On the level of organizations, maybe not. Mm-hmm. But again, it's an important question. Mm-hmm. I actually loved your, your, your perspective. And it also takes, it takes me on a journey, right? Because I, I'm sort of straddled in between both worlds where I'm one of the few people in the anarchist world that tries to bring a spiritual, mystical perspective. Right. And it's like really rejected, you know, like, like I, I did a talk at um, the left forum after Occupy in 2012 mm-hmm. called uh, 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 Occupy Yourself. And, you know, and I wasn't even saying that it's just about the inner work. I was saying these things are discursive, interdependent, right. you know, and, and the level of hate and vehemence that came towards me was like, I literally felt like I had to be escorted out with private security. Wow. You know, and, and so, so it's interesting then for me to hear this, your, your perspective on it, which is par- partly what you're saying to me and what I'm internalizing is n- not just, it's, it's the, the manner by which we communicate this in the external world is creating an environment uh, which might mean a World Bank person, let's say, would be more comfortable being a conscientious objector and come into the, the, the external fold here that would hold that person than if you try to go for the jugular, let's say. Right. You know, 
that yep. you, we, we, and, and that's partly actually strategically and from a communications perspective, it's more spiritually true with how we resonate as, as beings, beings to beings. And, and that's, of course, always the reason to do it. But there's also a strategic communication yeah, more effective. Uh, yeah. reason to do it, uh, right. which is, uh, and you know, it's interesting. In some ways, I thought that uh, I always felt like this, this was kind of the rules contribution to the left in, in, in some way is to say, look at the structure of the system. It's just creating a set of values that's rewarding certain behavior. And it's not about X person or Y person. But yet there is still a judgment in how people benefit from that system. So you can name the system, but you're still naming the person who's benefiting from the system, which is not the same as naming the system and then holding a bridge of compassion to say, that's also not what you want. And are they really benefiting? I mean, this is the the other thing. Yeah. Like to say that they're benefiting is to adopt the metrics of the dominators. Right. To say, here's what benefit is. And, right. and if we could only bring those benefits to all those poor people in the Amazon and make, lift, their, lift them out of, you know, yeah, exactly. subsistence you're, agriculture. You're a developer all of a sudden. You're in the you're development. back to development. Yeah. yeah, you're in the development game. Yeah. And, 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 you know, and it's interesting. On some level, are they benefiting? Yeah. You know, if you work at the World Bank, your average salary is probably $200,000. You get a UN diplomatic passport. Right. You know, you get diplomatic immunity, et cetera, et cetera. And yet, th- what measures are those? Within a certain context, you're benefiting. Right. Right. And, and, and with a you know, and for, for many people aspire to that. But there's also a question of like, how do we create a culture where that, that very choice is not aspiring anymore? You know, and, and that does require some form of material safety as well. You know, people are going to make that choice unless they are materially safe in the alternative, which is a very hard context to create. But they're also, but the context we can create is to make them feel spiritually held and by, by, by making the other choice. Right. You know, I feel like a lot of the audience I engage, I mean, a lot of them are kind of political, you know, and radical, and a lot of them are totally not. And I would like to have a follow-up conversation with you sometime where you can flesh out a bit of these uh, excluded truths about the way the world works. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah. Happy to. Yeah. 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 I-, I think if you and I are just in dialogue, it'll flow. Yeah. But it was actually just good for me to have this conversation with you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for um, yeah, taking me on that journey with you. Yeah. Well, it was my pleasure. And thanks um, for taking the time, Charles. It means a lot to me. And uh, yeah, this is awesome. Yeah. Lots of love. Yeah. We'll talk soon, Charles. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. This has been a new and ancient story with your host, Charles Eisenstein. I offer this podcast in the spirit of the gift, by which I mean that I don't withhold premium content for a price or put up paywalls or do affiliate marketing or have advertising or anything like that. Instead, I rely on supporters like you. If you would like to support it, you can subscribe at charleseisenstein.net for a small monthly amount, or you can subscribe for free as well. Either way, you get the same content, everything's the same, and you'll be notified every time a new podcast comes out. Also on the site, you can find archived episodes along with everything else that I produce, essays, books, videos, online courses. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll be with you again next time.